0: Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Furnell as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen.
1: This is a CBC podcast.
0: Hey everyone, this is Leah we have a bonus episode for you. I host another show called Podcast Playlist where each week we take a look at new and interesting podcasts from around the world. I also talk to creators who recommend shows they like, and in this one, I'm going to be chatting with someone you may be familiar with, Phelan Johnson. We're going to hear about what Phelan likes to listen to, a bit about how we make The Secret Life of Canada, and just so you know, off the top, we're going to play a clip from our most recent episode, so you can always fast-forward that part if you've already heard it. We had a lot of fun doing this, so hope you like it. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, this is Podcast Playlist, and today on the show we're doing a bit of a crossover episode. In addition to Podcast Playlist, I also host a CBC podcast called The Secret Life of Canada. And on that show, my co-host, Phelan Johnson, and I tell the lesser-known stories from Canada's past. Stories like the time Canada tried to build a ship out of ice during World War II. Did you know about that? We didn't, and then we did a show about it. Or how black women weren't allowed to become nurses in this country until the 1950s. This month, we're launching season four of The Secret Life of Canada. So to celebrate, Phelan is joining me on Podcast Playlist today to share some of her favorite podcasts. Hey, Phelan.
2: Hey, Leah. It's so weird to hear you say my name and for me not to say, hey, Leah. Like when you said, hi, I'm Leah, I really wanted to say, hi, I'm Phelan, right after, which is just like my natural reaction. It's our bit. It's our bit. Yeah.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the podcast and kind of about you as a podcaster. As you know, we met as playwrights. Mm-hmm. We both mm-hmm. worked in theater and now we're podcasters. What do you think connects these two different
2: kinds of storytelling? I mean, I think for us it was, it was history, right? Like I think a lot of the work that we were doing as playwrights lent towards a historical bent. Like we were both interested in historical things. Um, and I also like to say that I like to refer, refer to us as plaque readers, like you're like one of the only other people I know who will stop and read a plaque. Um, and so that's yes. how I knew we were kindred. Um, but I think there's also something I think there's something about theater and scripting. Um, and, and we script this podcast, which I always feel like saying spoiler alert. We script the podcast. We script it and then we leave the script. So the script is in mm. front of us and we refer to it. But we also have that theater ability of looking at it and leaving it. Um, so who knew? Theater. Good for something. Just kidding. Theater.
0: <laughs> um, so we've been making the show now for almost six years. I think.
2: Oh my god! Sorry. I Knowing
0: should...
2: <laughs> I shouldn't sound I know, so it's... shocked by that, but let's yeah. take a pause. Okay.
0: Knowing what you know now, if you could go back and give your season one self a piece of advice, what would it be?
2: Buy Dogecoin. No, um. <laughs> just kidding i think Dogecoin is actually tanking now um no i think oh, i God. think i would i like i think i would say i honestly think it would be more words of encouragement i think i'd like to mm-hmm. go back and give myself a pat on the back and be like it's going to be okay like these stories are so hard mm-hmm. um and i know we deliver them in such a fun quippy light way but the stories that we we've we've gone on to tell over you know now going into our fourth season they're so hard um But I think we've seen so much. We've seen good change come out of them. There have been like small moments of change. We've seen some things happen in the world with our listeners where they've sort of embraced the material and they've sent us emails saying like, I didn't know this. And if I had known this. And so I feel like we've I mean, I think that's the thing that keeps us going is knowing that we've made, you know, some small change in the world. So I think instead of like words of encouragement, I don't know, I might be like stop watching so much Netflix and trying to work it into your script. Those references aren't going to hold forever.
0: Oh, man. <laughs> that That is a big learning for me. It's like, don't make any references whatsoever, because we listened to our first season. And I think I I do a whole segment and relate some very deep history to... Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake's relationship. Well, I think that I think, I, can't remember. See, I think that holds. I think that is timeless. It was historical even then, <laughs> but I don't know if it's you know yeah. we have different information now about how that all went down.
2: Yeah, I think I would I would go back in time and I'd give us both a pat on the back and be like, you know what, way <laughs> to go, like nice work.
0: That's nice. I know it I is nice. Think, you know what? I wouldn't tell me anything.
2: Really? I would not
0: give myself any no because I think. Part of the reason we were able to do what we did is because we were very naive Mm. about podcasting or just the media landscape. Like, we did not know anything. We were coming from a totally different discipline and way of working. And so I think if I knew everything that I now know, I probably wouldn't start a podcast to be honest, I'd be like, well, I don't have the thing and I need the thing, you know, so yeah, I think words it's, of encouragement I think it's okay. for
2: future podcasters.
0: Yeah. Know nothing. Read nothing. Trust no one. Yeah, and just do it alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. OK, so so what do you think is the biggest difference in how we make the show now as compared to season one? Like, what's the thing that stands out? to you as being very different we get
2: paid um, <laughs> yes I mean that is like what you know that's we, the big one that is that is big, that is a, well. I mean it is a big difference and I know it's a luxury that a lot of people who make podcasts are still working for right like you know we had a patreon we made you know a, a little bit of money off of that but I think you know that's that's an obvious and easy one I think I think what's really changed is um, how how I research how I research now, Mm. where I go to research, I have faster um, ways of approaching different avenues. Before I thought, you know, I think I looked at things like how I did when I was in school and like researching a paper or whatever, you know, like you go to the reference library and you go to the (laughs) fifth floor and you pull those plays off the shelf and then, you know, you read them and whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think this is like, especially during a pandemic in a lot of ways has taught me how to utilize the internet in a different way and find different places to find references um mm-hmm. i also think i'm a little bit braver about talking to people remember how shy we were when we first started doing streeters
0: oh yeah i i wouldn't do that i was there physically but i was like i can't <laughs> but not in your body on the street <laughs> i was so first of all i mean being from toronto and living in toronto you get pretty adept at ignoring people on the street mm-hmm. at all costs. So I am that person. And then to be the person that's approaching people, it was deeply... Like, I I had a lot of self-loathing and I hated doing it very much. It sounds great, though, in the podcast. It does. It does. And remember, I
2: remember what we learned, what we learned really early on was uh, farmer's markets. People will that's talk right. to you at a farmer's market.
0: An older demographic actually in my opinion is a more social demographic and yeah. and possibly nicer no offense to everyone else but they are more they're less yeah. freaked out if you walk up to them and say hey would you like to talk about canadian history you know they're down
2: <laughs> they're yeah, younger it. people are like are no to be afraid <laughs> like oh god no it's not good i know
0: <laughs> yes right they know mm-hmm. um, okay so Now that we've made so many episodes, Mm -hmm. do you think it's easier or harder to
2: find interesting stories? I think I think it's easier, I think because I think we've changed. Right. Like, I think I I was thinking about this the other day, how, you know, we we find episodes and then we find episodes inside episodes. Like, I think back to the Bay Blanket episode um, from season three. And I remember you were like, this film is called You're on Indian Land. Um, In it, you'll see Duke Redbird who we both know and love. Um, and you're like, this film was made by the Indian film crew. It was an initiative through the of NF- historic NFB Indian film crew, an all indigenous
0: production unit established in 1968.
3: For many of us, the Hudson's Bay Company is the main bone of contention. We have been conquered as natives.
2: And then we moved on because we can't stay in that nugget of information. But then I like we held on to that nugget. And I was like, I think there's something here. And initially it was going to be a short episode and then it blew up into like a full length episode where we looked at the work of the Indian film crew through the National Film Board. And that fantastic work in the scale and, you know, I still think it's a thing that not enough people know about. Or I also mm-hmm. think about the episode on water where we uh, or no, sorry, it was the episode on Autumn Peltier. If that's what it was. Where she presented uh, Prime Minister Trudeau with a copper pot, a ceremonial copper pot, um, which is a water bearing item for a lot of um, a lot of nations in Canada. And she presented him this copper pot. And I was like looking at this picture of her handing him this pot. And I was like, well, what happened to the pot? Where does the pot go? And then I was like, and what about all those headdresses? And so that's going to be turning into something for this season where we look at mm-hmm. uh, an episode that we're we're calling Prime Minister's Closet, because mm-hmm. I want to know what happens to those things. You know, all the sunglasses and watches and, you know, Inuit sculptures that they get. What happens to all of those things that a prime minister gets?
0: Yeah, I don't wanna ruin it, but I'll just say yeah, I was about to <laughs> let it all
2: but I'll I'll hold it. Save back. it. Save it for the episode.
4: That's
0: a good segue into the episode that we're gonna introduce listeners to today. Which was an episode that was really going to be about this, these very famous two black and white photos called Before and After of a little indigenous boy, often unnamed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the episode was going to just be about who is this boy and where is he from and why Why is he often unnamed in these photos, even though people are printing them and sharing them Mm -hmm. and what the episode and the episode is about that? But it's also about how photography at that time really framed indigenous people. And it really starts to investigate, are these two photos that are being used today as an example of this is what happened to kids in residence? He walked in. Residential school looking like this and he came out looking like this. Are those photos even real?
5: Mm -hmm. Are they
0: doctored? Are they are they a real indication of of that child in his life and his name? by the way, was Thomas Morkisic. Um, so in the before photo, Thomas appears to be wearing traditional, you know, quote unquote, traditional indigenous clothing. He has long braided hair. And in the after photo, he has really short hair and European style clothing. He's wearing, you know, like a boy's suit. Um, and the photos were used by the Canadian government and the Department of Indian Affairs to to promote You know, the quote unquote civilizing influence of residential schools, and then since then have been used to show the opposite. So let's listen to a clip now to hear a little bit about what we learned. And just a warning this section is about residential schools, so it contains some disturbing details that may not be appropriate for all audiences. I'm going to read a snippet from a report from the first principal of the Regina Industrial School. His name was... Sorry.
2: I jumped jumped (laughs) on that one right away. I I know, right?
0: (laughs) Let me say his name and then you can boo. A reverend, Angus J. McLeod. Boo. Okay, that's perfect. Okay. So just listen to the amount of things the students were forced to build by year two of this place. So they did this in two years, little children. He writes that the students... Put up a wire fence, had planted four acres of potatoes and vegetables, nine acres of wheat, 19 acres of oats, 27 acres of mixed hay, as well as some barley, rye, and millet. Eight boys in carpentry had built a three-truss bridge over the Wascana, an ice house, a root cellar, a laundry, and a building that housed a carpentry shop, a paint shop, a shoe shop, and bedrooms. Employees.
2: So in the first two years there, it was likely Thomas worked with other children to build a lot of what was described there. He, like, literally built the walls around him that held him. So it wasn't a school. It's a work camp.
0: Completely. In that first year, many children tried to escape and run away. And unfortunately, every single one of them was found and forced back. In its first six years of operations, an average of around eight children died each year. At the Regina Indian Industrial School. While the industrial school was in operation, physical, sexual, and mental abuse was rampant. The children were also forced to endure everything from lack of proper clothing to bedding to inadequate shelter and poor nutrition, which led to illnesses like smallpox and tuberculosis. These schools were a key factor in the transmission of TB Tuberculosis in Indigenous communities. Kids would contract it at school, bring it home to their communities, and then infected children would go back to schools, reinfecting the school.
2: The first residential school was the Mohawk Institute near Brantford, Ontario, which opened in 1834. And, not fun fact, that's where my family went. The Mohawk Institute, the Mush Hole, the searches just started there recently. I don't know what they're doing now because the ground is probably almost frozen. That's being treated as a criminal investigation. It's a crime scene, but not all of the schools are. I have all kinds of feelings about why those words aren't used, why we don't use crime scene, why our deaths aren't considered. It just seems like there's a separation, and I, I wish we could start to take that separation out of the wording when we talk about these things. Because that's generally regarded as one of the worst things that could ever happen, right? The death of a child. And it just it feels like there's, there's still this disconnect in a lot of people's minds about the bodies of Indigenous children.
0: Absolutely. It's taken too long. You know, it's still taking too long. But, you know, as the saying goes, the truth always comes out. And I believe it will.
2: In case that you think this was all in the past, the last residential school would close more than 150 years later in 1996 in Saskatchewan. But what else did you find out about Thomas?
0: Well, I was starting to get worried because I couldn't find any more.
2: Again, I am not surprised by this.
0: I did find an article, though, which was in the Regina Leader Post, and it's about a filmmaker by the name of Louise Big Eagle. She's from Ocean Man, First Nation, and she now lives in Regina, Saskatchewan. She made a short documentary about Thomas called I Am a Boy. I was very happy to find her, obviously. And anyway, a couple of years ago, Louise had the very same questions about this picture as we did. And the first time I
4: saw these images of Thomas, I was in university and I was actually doing a paper on residential schools and I, of course, was exploring the internet, I was, you know, Googling it, um, residential schools, and then his images were the ones that popped up and those, You know, the stitches just resonate with you. They stay with
2: you. They really do. So where did Louise go from there after she saw the pictures?
0: Well, she was able to take the research further because of a job that she got with the Regina Indian Industrial Media Project, R-I-I-S or RISE for short. It's described as being formed as a community healing multimedia resource for the Regina Indian Industrial School legacy funded by the United Church of Canada. Here's Louise again describing how her work there led her to making the documentary.
4: I was actually being a social media manager for RISE Media Project with Janine Windolph and the late Trudy Stewart. At that time, they were doing research for that school and because there was a graveyard that was found just outside Regina here off Pinky Road. So they were kind of doing research of who was buried there, when they were buried there, They were making those connections and research, and they were doing also a uh, documentary on that as well. And then they just came to me one day and said, hey, we have an idea. We want you to make your own documentary. Like, do you have any ideas of what you want to do? We'll support you. We'll be your mentors. We'll guide you. We'll help you. But you're the director. You're going to be like the writer. And then I knew right away that I wanted to do a documentary on residential schools because my parents were residential school survivors. So I just kind of wanted to share that story.
2: So Louise wanted to make a film on residential schools to tell that story because she has a personal connection to those places. Uh, What year was this?
0: So she made the documentary in 2015, and in her research, she learned a lot more about Thomas.
4: We found out his name was Thomas Markisick, and he went to residential school, of course, August 26, 1891. And he was eight years old at the time, and eight years old, I was a little bit older to go to schools. So a lot of people would go at four or six years old, so we found out that his his dad was a Deslet, and his mom was a Kisick a more Kesick,
2: okay, wow, so his full name was thomas More Kisick. that that already makes him feel more whole to mm-hmm. me hmm i I agree I was so happy to hear that, but
0: he was actually registered as number 22 at the school because he was the 22nd child to be enrolled. And we can't actually be sure that they called him by any name at all because at times in these institutions, they just referred to the kids as numbers, which is so heartbreaking. We also don't know if he had another name, a non-English one, maybe in his maternal language of Anishinaabe Hmm. I hope that if the name he used was Tom or Thomas, that they called him Tom. But we just don't know. His parents' names were recorded as Paul Desjarlais Sr. and Hannah Moore Kesick, And three of their children, Samuel, Julia, and little Thomas, went to the Regina Indian Industrial School. Like Louise said, when Thomas arrived on August 26th, 1891. He was just eight years old, and he and his family were from Muscapeding Soto First Nation, which was a big surprise to her. Here she is again.
4: And then we found out he was from Muscapeding, which is like not very far from here from Regina. And that just kind of blew our minds. We're just like, what? He's from here. He's from Saskatchewan. His home reserve is not even from far from here. Like, how do we not know this?
2: So she didn't suspect that he was from Saskatchewan at all. No, she had no idea
0: that he was a child that, you know, lived not very far away from where she was doing this research.
2: Right, yeah. And I know at the time a lot of children would be sent far from their families so that it would be harder for them to run away to try to get home. But that wasn't always the case. Um, And so... What what happened to Thomas?
4: So what happened to Thomas Morkisic was that when he was about 12 years old, he contracted um, tuberculosis. Once he contracted it, he was sent home, and that's where he, he died. Which, to me, it's, as sad as it is, I thank goodness that he was sent home so he can be with his family at that time. I know a lot of children in residential school, when they contracted tuberculosis, they died in those schools, and I'm sure they died you know, by themselves, alone in in the bed. So, like I said, it's sad as it is, I'm thankful that he was able to go home. And to me, I kind of sat there after and I and I wondered, like, if he didn't go to these schools, would he have actually contracted tuberculosis and died at such a young age? Or what could have happened if he didn't go to these schools? Like, would he have lived long to be an old man, you know, had his own children? You just think more in depth of about this boy.
0: That was The Boy in the picture from The Secret Life of Canada. It's hosted and produced by me, Leah Simone Bowen. Our story editor is Yvette Nolan and historical consultant is Andrea Eidinger. My co-host and co-producer is Phelan Johnson, who is my guest today on Podcast Playlist. She's here to share some of her favorite podcasts. So we are talking about your favorite podcasts, you have recommended Mike Berbiglia's Working It Out. Yes. <laughs> I too, I too love this podcast. Oh, okay. I was recently introduced to, to it a couple of months ago and started listening to it and it, it's lovely.
2: So why, um, why this podcast? It's gentle. It's like a comedy podcast, but it's gentle and it's process driven. And it has like a, sometimes I get really, um, I get, Exhausted of comedy podcasts where it's just a bunch of people like yelling at each other, so I love mm-hmm. a format. So I love the format that he lays out. Right, it's an interview, but then he also has sort of standardized questions that he asks each guest. Um, you know, like what's a smell from your childhood that you remember? Um, I kind of what's a smell from your childhood, Leah? Kind of want to. I kind of want to play Mike Burbiglia's with you.
0: Uh, I would say. Um, like, really fresh carrots coming out of the garden. Like, there's a smell of, like, really fresh soil and sweet carrots.
2: That is so wholesome. I think, like, 75% of his guests are cigarette smoke.
0: <laughs> I knew. I was like, you're going to say cigarettes. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> cigarettes. It's also, my mother listens to this pot, this show, so I'm like, the wholesome smell mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. bread baking and love in my house. I don't know. Yeah, but the, yeah. I do think of that. Yeah,
2: yeah. Carrots. Um, so he yeah so he has this great you know format I think about you know asking people these questions but then they also do a section where they work out new material so they one person will be like here's some beginnings of a joke I'm not really sure if it's anything yet and then they'll work through that idea together and I love that idea of being so transparent about process and process in process you know like material in process I think it's such a fun peek behind the curtain. Um, and yeah, so it, he also he just feels like a gentle comedian, you know, like mm-hmm. there's something that he just feels like a he nice seems person. Nice. He, seems he seems nice. nice. He and we
0: should mention that Mike Berbiglia is a, a writer and a stand up. And he's also has worked in podcasting for mm-hmm. years and is a solo performer. The first episode of the, Working It Out is actually with Ira Glass mm-hmm. um, of of podcast fame of NPR fame. Um, but he, he is really, I think because he works in podcasting and has worked in scripting, that's why it takes on that tone of, of, um, let's try and figure it out together. And it also happened because of the pandemic, he -hmm. was Mm -hmm. stuck at home and wanted to work on some jokes and stuff like that. So it's a great show yeah so you wanted us to hear the episode with sterlin harjo for people who don't know who is sterlin
2: uh sterlin is an indigenous filmmaker um who uh, i've been following his work for years um he's an innovator he's currently um uh he's working with Taika Waititi on the show Reservation Dogs um which I th- you know I think is is now going forward with its second season which is uh, a fantastic show that really embraces indigenous humor um and I think you know this last year was a year where we saw shows like Rutherford Falls um mm-hmm. Reservation Dogs um our sh- uh, you know being on TV is a wild experience for indigenous people um because we're so underrepresented in that medium and um you know there's we don't really have indigenous shows there aren't a lot of them yet um so seeing him start to work on this show and and engage in TV and put that out there especially in a comedy form mm-hmm. like comedy it's so it feels so important it feels so so important, and there were so many times when I was watching either Rutherford Falls or Reservation Dogs, Sterling Show, where I would get up like they they would deliver a joke, and I would have to stand up and like walk around. You know, when something you feel so seen that like you can't even like stay still anymore, you have to get up and be like, oh my god. um So yeah, it's a fun. It's just such a fun show, uh, and again, like. It's also just so fun to see people, you know, in it.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Shout out to Michael Gray
2: Eyes. (laughs) Shout out to all of the the indigenous folks on both of those shows who I who I know, who I have the good fortune to know. Thanks for making great TV. Keep making great TV for me and for other people. Mm -hmm. too.
0: (laughs) It's so true. So in this clip, we're going to hear Mike ask Sterling about his show Reservation Dogs. Let's listen
1: reservation dogs I think is hilarious and it's the best Thank kind you. of uh, comedy mixed with tragedy yeah. I was I would almost compare it to like freaks and geeks yeah or totally. like stand by me or, or, yeah, or yeah, like yeah. one of these shows where it's kids and they're just kids being kids and mm-hmm. they're a lot of stuff up but also they're learning a lot and it's like so m- it's like all at once everything you know
6: stand by me those movies were were really informative to this. I mean, even like Rumblefish and the Outsiders, you know, sure. where it's like um, these, you know, which were shot here in Tulsa. And so like it's kind of a part of your, your, mem- your memory as a child growing up. But like, you know, I love, I love uh movies or f- shows where kids aren't being quirky adults, yeah. you know, like, like they're being kids. Sure. But also faced with real And drama, you know, and and there's humor and there's your world and there's your point of view. But it's like, how do they handle that drama through their point of view? You know, it's different than I think adults. So I I don't know. Like that was sort of the goal with Reservation Dogs.
1: Yeah. It's interesting with you were saying, like, you know, you're you're trying to find with native comedy, you know, where are you letting people come in to your culture and then where are you sort of uh, Showing them something that's outside of their experience because because the, right. the way I always think of jokes is you have your setup, which is something we always we all agree to be true, and yeah. you have your punchline, uh, which is a, sort of a right turn from that truth. And then I always think of tags as being sort of like once you're in that punchline universe, here's some digressions of yeah. what what else could be true. If this is true, what else right. is true? And so right. the, the mathematics of jokes are like that. I think that one of the things that must be a challenge with Native comedy is that the Ameri- just the American experience uh, alone in terms of understanding Native history is all over the map. Yeah. Man. And so your, your, your setup uh, is not necessarily agreed upon. Right. Right. You know what I mean? There's, there are people who go like, well, the native, it wasn't a genocide. Right, it right, was right. disease or whatever. And you go right. like, no, 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 uh, that it was a genocide. You yeah. know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's a lot of disparity if you dig into the different people telling the histories yeah. what the history is. And so then you have to deal with that from a joke perspective, I feel like.
6: Yeah. I mean, there's so many like books that come out that are like, oh, actually the Comanche were, you know, like brutal people. You know, it's like. Well, sure, they were brutal. They were like running for their homes and their lives, right? Like, if you're taking them into context from this moment that you're talking about, of course you could read it that way. You yeah. know? Or it's like there's a lot of revisionist history. I feel like you know, and um, and no one does agree about our history. I mean, like, I mean, it's depressing talking about. It. You know, it's yeah, like, of course, uh, yeah. You know, it's like, and 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 I think growing up, it's like you watch movies where your people are represented as the the zombies, right? And like the bad guys. And so all of that, there's a lot of baggage that comes into, all right, let's go make them laugh. Indian jokes. Sure. Like, let's go. (laughs) Sure. And so, and I do think that um, one of the things that we did with Reservation Dogs was kind of acknowledge that and... We had to acknowledge, like, if I said to your audience or whoever, 90% of the people in the world, if I said, like, draw me a Native American person, like, it would be a person in buckskin on a horse with long hair, mm-hmm. uh, with some beads on and, and, and like a choker, whatever, you know, like, that would be the classic vision of what Native people are. and. Reservation Dogs acknowledges that and there's this character who's yes, played by Dallas Goldtooth who was one of the founding members of the comedy group. Yeah, 1491, um, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, it's like we have to acknowledge this yeah. because it's going to be like the elephant in the room that doesn't get acknowledged if we just try to go through and like, oh, we don't think about any of that stuff when in, when in reality we do. And so it was like, all right, here is this guy and this is what you think we look like and we just did a setup of this whole show to this point where you're seeing like kids stealing a chip truck, the Stooges are yep. playing. I want to be your dog. Like it's <laughs> kind of punk rock, Uh, and then all of a sudden this character drops in, yes. sort of a spirit guide, and like, and he talks in his like poetic thing, you know, and like. But I think that, like you're saying, you know, our setup, a native, like there is no. There, it's hard to set that up. So it was like drop them into this world, make them feel like. Make them drowned a little bit. Yeah. They don't know where they're at. They don't know what the hell's going on. This is very different. But then bring this character in yeah. to ground to ground everyone, but also invite them in to laugh at this stereotype that we all agree is like the sort of image of what has been put upon us. Yeah, um, and there's some truth in that image as well, right? Like we did at one point dress like that, um, and you know we 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 did ride horses. And there's a lot of truths in that stereotype, but like. Isn't it ridiculous that you think that that's what we are now to this day? Right, yeah. And I think that also helps bring in the audience and give them permission to laugh and kind of be like, oh, I get where we're at now,
1: you know? Yeah, I think that one of the things that I like most about the series, and and I'm a big cinephile, so like more often than not, I actually like, I'll usually see a TV series and I'll go, I wish they had just made a film of this. Uh, (laughs) That's (laughs) like my dirty little secret about a lot of (laughs) shows. (laughs) And uh, yeah. and with your series, I'm like, I'm so glad they made this a series, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because it merits, you know, going down the rabbit hole of each of these characters. I mean, I, I felt that way about a series I was on as an actor, Orange is the New Black, where, yes. where I was like, oh, Genji did this really smart thing where she presented this world— and then she's decided, okay, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole of Crazy Eyes. I'm going to go down the rabbit hole of, you know, the uh, yeah. you know, the the warden character, et cetera. And we're going to understand in sort of a holistic sense, like, what, what the human experience is through that. And I feel like that's right. what I like most about your show is that every episode, I feel like I'm understanding these characters and completely understand. Uh, different way and I'm it, you know the most exciting thing for me is I'm seeing myself in it uh, right. which I think is the goal of sort of all great storytelling is that you you right. see some part of yourself in the story
0: that was a clip from the podcast Mike Berbiglia's Working It Out it's hosted by Mike Berbiglia and in that clip he was talking to Sterling Harjo I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Crypto Land. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. So the next podcast that you've recommended is a history podcast mm-hmm, because it's mm-hmm. it's in your wheelhouse mm-hmm. so what is it about let's find out that's the name of the podcast uh,
2: okay so we you know we we had the opportunity to meet uh chris he's one of the co-hosts of the podcast a couple of years ago when we were out in edmonton Um, at the Literary Festival. And he, I hadn't heard of his podcast, um, but after he moderated our conversation, I was like, who is this fascinating person? Um, And so I started listening to the podcast and it's sort of local history, um, looking at the history of Edmonton in a really, I think, creative and unique sort of way. Um, I like the deep dives that they do into things. Um, Mm And I I, I and I just think that they're it just it's such a, a lovely listening experience.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, Chris Changian Phillips, who is the the host, he's the former historian laureate of Edmonton. And so during his time in that role, he created the podcast Let's Find Out just really to encourage people to discover more about their city. And one of the most popular episodes is about an Edmonton delicacy, green onion cakes. Do you know do you know about green onion cakes because they're amazing and everybody in Edmonton kind of knows about them. Have you ever had one? I've never
2: had one. What are these cakes?
0: (laughs) So green onion cakes look like almost a, um, what would they be
2: equivalent to? It's not like a scallion? Is it like a scallion pancake?
0: Yeah, it looks like a small pancake. Uh Like, that's how Uh big it is. And it's literally fried dough with a ton of green onions in it. I'm sure there are other... I don't actually know what's...
2: Well, yeah, it sounds like... It sounds like like I know that you can get them in, like, Chinatown, right? You can get a green onion pancake. So it's like a scallion pancake.
0: Yeah, and um, you usually get them... They're kind of flaky. Like, it's almost a pastry. And then it comes with, like, a... kind of a hot, sweet and soury sauce. And they're just the perfect thing when, you know, in my youth.
2: Mm -hmm. When when you weren't eating fresh carrots out of the ground. (laughs) When I was eating
0: fresh carrots out of the ground, after that experience, I would always crave green onion cakes. Mm, Okay. That's all I'll say. So in this episode, Chris is going to be interviewing the man who brought green onion cakes to Edmonton more than 30 years ago. His name is Suto. This interview was recorded in front of a live audience before the pandemic, and then apparently after this event, the green onion cakes became even more popular than they already were. Here's Chris.
7: How did Happy Garden, this restaurant in Park Island, how did it start?
3: Oh, Happy Garden is, uh, before I started a Happy Garden, I was... Uh, coming to this this new town, I was working in the construction. But at the same time, I I, I thinking about the local Chinese restaurant have something uh, different than my hometown cooking. So that, as a newcomer, I always looking for opportunities. So I thought, huh, I maybe have a chance to do the cooking business. So one day, I then I see the Advertising, say the restaurant selling for $30,000, and uh, yeah, if you only can pay $6,000, the rest is installment. Wow. <laughs> so I thought to my wife, I said, let's go. <laughs> so I pick up the phone, I tell him, I will come to your restaurant and pay you $6,000, and hold on, and don't sell it to anyone within this hour, okay? <laughs> And he said? He said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) He said, but don't worry. I've been advertising for two months already. (laughs) Nobody.
7: (laughs) (laughs) So were green onion cakes on the menu when you first opened?
3: Yes. The first thing I do is uh, I'm making the green onion cake. And
7: what did they look like then?
3: uh that time the uh it's a bigger than today you eating i i try to make it a little bigger <laughs> like a like a what they said like a personal size of a pizza that kind of thing 10, ten inches one but then uh, i reduced to the more like a personal size now right
7: so they were they were bigger back then yeah when did you first start selling the the smaller kind when did they first like kind of catch on as their own thing?
3: Well, because the customer was uh, uh, a little bit complaining, you know, say, say sure, uh, your granny cake sounds like too big, looks like it too big, you know? When we have this appetizer, that, that, that means that we don't need any other th- food anymore, you know?
7: <laughs> and there was a reviewer from the Edmonton Journal who came to Happy Garden, right? Yes. Judy Schultz? Yes. OK, so how did that review change the, the, the restaurant
3: Oh that was a very uh, dramatic uh, event. I remember Judy Schultz was coming with another lady and with the kids with the little kids and uh, they ordered so many food all the menus, all the items from my menus and I was the person to serving in the front. I would say huh as a ladies excuse me you order too many food. (laughs) He said, don't worry. (laughs) We will eat. uh, Or we can take it out. I say, no, no, no. (laughs) Chinese food is better you eat right here. And uh, uh, if you like our food, you can come tomorrow, right? So, uh, so, so, So then she asked me, how many items I should order. I say for two and the uh, kids maybe maybe three or four. That's a maximum. Okay, so you can come back next time.
7: <laughs> but she wrote about the green onion cakes.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah. She wrote, uh, yeah, she wrote the green onion cake. Yeah.
7: All right. So that is part of the piece of how the word started to get out. And then tell me about when you first started selling the green onion cake at the festivals.
3: Oh. Uh, I I remember uh, that was uh, in 1985 and uh, there's a group of the uh, city uh, people from the downtown uh, economic uh, development something like this and I think they see some something in the Boston have that kind of a taste of a Boston that kind of thing so they they coming back they say we want to do something like like this, right? And so they select, We are the one of their select uh, select restaurants.
7: And why did you pick green onion cakes to sell? The-
3: well, uh, because very simple. The uh, green onion cake, you just uh, bring the green onion cake frozen pre-made, and in the job side, you just pan fry them and you serve, right? If we do the uh, uh, stir fry. Then I have uh, thinking about the shrimps. So uh, if uh, beef or pork, you got too many ingredients to carry, right? And you on the side, you don't have uh, refrigeration. So the obviously for me, uh, green onion cake is the best uh, choice.
7: Well, how, what did people think of green onion cakes that year? In the
3: in the general public. Maybe they don't know the green onion cake, unless you are my uh, customer uh, guest in my restaurant before. So I have to promote it. I have to encourage the people to taste. So in the first, I remember in the first part of the uh, green onion cake we selling, we literally giving the samples for everyone. We encourage the people to taste.
7: And you could afford to give a sample?
3: Oh, yeah, because the uh, green onion cake, the cost is very reasonable, right? And and the Oli was very helpful, too, right?
0: <laughs> that was a clip from the podcast Let's Find Out. It's hosted and produced by Chris Chang-Yen Phillips and Trevor chow Frazier. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist. My guest today is Phelan Johnson, my co-host on the CBC podcast, The Secret Life of Canada. She's here with me today to share some of her favorite podcasts. Okay, the next one, Unrooted.
2: Uh, Why do you like this podcast? Well, again, it's another history podcast, and it has an Indigenous lean into... I think it's something sort of akin to what Secret Life does. I think you know, there's there's someone who takes the like one one host rower or Izzy, will take the other one on a journey to learn about something, and I think that's really similar to what we do. So I can appreciate I can appreciate that, and I can appreciate the amount of work it probably is to you know explain these things that are huge concepts, right? It's those big concepts um, that can feel so overwhelming to try and understand, but they explain them um, in a really succinct and, and and understandable way, which I think I mean honestly, I'm all for I'm all for anyone who can explain things to me in a simple way that I can understand in a way that's digestible and quick because again, I think the more that we can explain these things that feel like such large concepts, that they're impossible to engage in and you feel like you'll never understand it because it's legalese and it's confusing and you don't have a law degree. Podcasts like this help to break those things down so that it feels, you know, I feel a little bit more empowered to talk about something. I feel a little bit more knowledgeable about the subject. Mm -hmm.
0: And this episode you picked is about names, about the colonial practice mm-hmm. of imposing European names on indigenous people. Why this specific episode? Well,
2: I've always wanted to know why I'm a Johnson. Um, no,
7: <laughs> I was just going to say, I actually was going
2: to say, why this episode, Phelan Johnson? I know, right? <laughs> I know I want a real cool last name, but I'm a Johnson and I'm okay with that. Okay. My great grandpa used to say, Johnson's good for nothing, uh, working and good looking. And I was like, "That's great. I'll take that."
0: But aren't there um, Skywalkers? There are Skywalkers. Oh yeah, there are Skywalkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are
2: Smokes. There are like Thunderhawks. There are yeah. I know. So,
0: I know. I, I'm not. Hey, no, I, I'm hey. not. I love. I think that's why my I think that's
2: why my great grandpa made made that little saying up for us. So he knew his ancestors could carry on. Some we had something to hold on to. <laughs> <laughs> but this podcast again I think it's something you know we've touched on some of this stuff about the renaming of things in this country um, and there's an interesting thing happening right now where there are a lot of places Um changing names right mm-hmm. like Canada seems to be trying to make good on some of its um, promises in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, and one of those was about naming right and about returning um, and allowing us to use our traditional names and so there's a bit of a shift happening so it, it, it feels timely to me to sort of educate myself a bit more on this um, and I think for other people too. So
0: in this clip from Unrooted, we're going to hear about this practice of giving Indigenous people European names um, in Canada and the impact it had on their families and communities. So
8: the settler state really had one main goal in the 19th century, which was the assimilation of all Indigenous peoples. So one way to do that was by renaming the entire population giving them European names.
5: Okay, so my first question is, how did renaming Indigenous peoples contribute to the assimilation? Okay, well, short
8: answer was to cut off their ties to mm. their traditions. But uh, to just talk about it further, the settler government did it to erase every single tie with uh, that the Indigenous people had with their cultures. Uh, but they also feared that if they were to leave them with their traditional names, then it would just make it harder to assimilate them, to remove them from their societies and place them in European societies. Because okay. um, their traditional names connected them to their cultures and their history, and the colonizers wanted to take that all away, right? Totally, like kind of take away part of their identity. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, But also, the Europeans found their traditional names difficult and mm. confusing to pronounce, mm. Um, and to even understand. Uh, so giving them European names just made it easier for the settlers to register them in their records. Because it their was job, all about, yeah, it was all about making their job easier. Yeah, making their job easier. Um, and indigenous peoples didn't have Christian names or like a last name, a surname. Uh, they actually had a variety of names and they ranged and deferred in the different stages of life of an indigenous individual. So my
5: next question to you is, why did indigenous peoples have a variety of names throughout their lifetime, and what was their connection to the names that they had or
8: were given? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so first off, uh, they would identify themselves through uh, their hereditary name, spirit name, family, clan, and animal name, so so many different names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now in some cultures hereditary names carried an immeasurable wealth and power and responsibility of the individuals um and the names that they were given at their birth was just like one of many um and it was just for that particular particular stage in their life and with every every new stage came new names for them uh, that symbolized their journey throughout their life and their experiences as well as their milestones and just their character I feel like that's super important because people do change immensely throughout their lifetimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It represented them at at any given moment in their life stages. It represented them. Totally. Mm -hmm. But now, of course, none of that was reflected in the names that they were given um, in the renaming process by the settlers. That was all just erased and taken away from them by giving them Christian names.
5: Totally, because why would the settlers want Indigenous people's values and culture to be
8: represented? Yeah, exactly. Now, like I said earlier, uh, one of the reasons that renaming happened was because the government agents found the traditional names to be difficult and all the traditional naming practices just didn't make sense to the agents, which comes from the complete and utter ignorance of the colonizer. Just no consideration whatsoever uh, to reflect and understand other cultures?
5: No, of course not, because they believed that their culture was the superior one. So why yeah. even bother examining or trying to understand even the littlest bit about exactly. someone else's culture?
8: Exactly, especially that their whole mission was to erase indigenous peoples off the face of the earth, whether totally. it was by assimilation or murder. So what's the yeah. point of learning? Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah so now in the renaming process the seller agent would give uh, a man a christian name and then also a non-indigenous surname uh while a woman was given a christian name but then her surname was that of her husband's or father's the one that her husband or father was given oh we love that Mm.
5: women weren't allowed their own surnames (laughs) yeah So my question is, how did the settlers decide which names to give to Indigenous peoples? And I assume
8: I already know the answer to this question, but was there any thought that (laughs) went into it? Okay, so, um, well, like we said before, uh, there was no connection, right? Their Mm -hmm. names that were given to them, uh, like their traditional names had. So the names were very arbitrarily chosen. um, Just random. Yeah, just absolutely random. Uh, but the names that were assigned to them were biblical names um, to follow with that Christian missionary type. Yep. Um, and sometimes it was just the names of the agents themselves. Uh-huh. No. Yeah. So. The agent would go from one place to another, and they would often just repeat the names, run out of names, run out of ideas for names, either give them your name or just keep on repeating those names. Um, So that just explains that how there's a lot of the same last names given to many people uh, who just have no connection or relation to one another. So let's just take a step back and talk about names here for a second. Um, Names hold an immense power. totally they carry your history and your ancestors history and to have that replaced with one that has no significance to you is such a ruthless and pernicious method of erasure of the indigenous individuals um and their communities as well
0: From the Indigenous Foundation, that was a clip of the podcast, Unrooted. It was hosted by Isabella Thurston and Roa Abdallah. Well, that was great to hear all of the things that you're listening to. I'm not surprised so many are history related, but some (laughs) some of them were surprises. Uh, If people want to hear more of our award-winning banter, they can check out the new season of The Secret Life of Canada wherever you get your podcasts. Phelan, thank you so much for sharing your favorite podcast with us today.
2: Well, thank you for having me. For more info and
0: links to everything we played today, head to cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli, Kelsey Cueva, Josh Fleer, and Elena Hudgens Lyle. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. RF Narani is our executive producer and the director of CBC Podcasts. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Thanks for listening. Okay, this is the Phelan episode. Okay, I I like a good
2: title. This is the Phelan episode. The Phelan episode.
0: A very special podcast. (laughs) It
2: also (laughs) sounds like the moment I am frequently in, which is a Phelan episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: (sighs) And that was Podcast Playlist. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or you can check us out on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Thanks for listening.